Would you please join me in the prayer for illumination found in your bulletin or on the screen? God, our mother and father, we welcome you as children. Be with us this day as we explore your word. Help us to learn to see one another with new eyes, hear one another with new hearts, and treat one another in a new way. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the first epistle of John, chapter one, verses five through nine. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not have, we lie and do not do what is true. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What happens when supervillain Gru, a man who delights in all things wicked, hatches a plan to steal the moon? Surrounded by an army of little yellow minions, his impenetrable army of weapons and war machines, Gru makes ready to vanquish all who stand in his way. And he does it by adopting three kids who will help him get to the ray gun that will help him shrink the moon. But in the midst of all of his calculations and all of his groundwork, it hasn't prepared him for the greatest challenge. The way in which these three adorable orphan girls will make him their dad. I, you know, I, I know it's... Um, aiming low for an audience with an average age that we have to play animated shorts. But that particular scene is beautiful. About the supervillain who you might imagine has no heart, but finds in these three children his own heart. How do we go about um, seeing the good in these types of moments? Gru was defended against all threats, right? I mean, between the minions and all of his defenses uh, around his headquarters, no one was going to get in. He was uh, very good at spotting threats far away and annihilating them before they ever came close. Except for these three adorable girls who seemed to slip under his radar and find their way past all the defenses into his heart. I think for Gru, one of the moments that works well for him is that he becomes humble. He recognizes that not everything he has and does is perfect. And so he enters into relationship with the girls with humility. I think everybody's looking for something. It's pretty fair to say. I think oftentimes what we're looking for is something that's perfect, something that we can claim as ours and no one else's, something that we can maybe even boast or brag about that we do that others don't. We're all kind of looking for that life purpose, that perfect thing. 
I don't know about you, but I found as a parent and also as a child that sometimes parents who are looking for that thing, they kind of put it on top of the shoulders of their children. I know for me, my dad, he was the oldest of five. Uh, he went to a um, military boarding school uh, where he, wa- he lettered in uh, football, basketball, track and wrestling. He was uh, the linebacker for the football team. He was the uh, captain of the wrestling team. I really think that it's kind of poetic justice that in the lottery of DNA, he gets me. Uh, I um, lettered in tuba. And I was a really good member of the chess club, but not good enough to get a letter. So there you go, all right? Um, Dad seemed to have this expectation that I would uh, take on the mantle of being uh, athletic. Um, I I found out later in life that that expectation, um, you see, the the family, um, he was oldest of five, but what doesn't always get said is that uh, he was one of those original single parent households. The family lived in the projects. My grandparents had divorced. Um, The... uh, The restaurant that they owned and was their family business um, was sold in the divorce. And so my grandmother went from being the wife of the owner to being one of the line waitresses working double shifts to provide for the children. My grandfather was pretty much uh, absent. We never really saw or talked to him very much after that. And so um, dad went to the boarding school on scholarship because of his athletic ability. The hope was that he would be funneled from that program into the Navy and be able to send checks home to help raise the rest of the kids. I remember the moment that my dad decided it was not necessary for me to be a football player. Um, I remember coming home, I was was defensive end. I remember coming home and uh, telling my dad I got in an argument with the coach. And he said, you, you argued with the coach, really? I said, yeah, we were doing drilling practices where you, you square off and you, you tackle each other. And, and the coach kept yelling at me to, to hit him harder, hit him harder. And I finally just looked at the coach and said, look, he's the only quarterback we got. Uh, he's the B string and the A string guy's sick this week. If we take him out, we got nothing for offense. The coach looked at me and said, Camarano, or actually it was Camaro, run fast. And why don't you run as fast as a Camaro? I said, because my name's Camarano, right? It was at that moment that dad decided that maybe my brain was getting in the way of muscle. (laughs) Though my dad let me out of the burden of carrying the mantle, how many of us are still carrying the mantle, even maybe as our parents are uh, headed off uh, to eternity in heaven? We still hear their voices. We still struggle with the burden. We still wonder whether we're living up to the name, whether we're doing all that is required of someone from a church like Chapelwood or someone from a community like Lake Jackson or someone who happens to have the last name of Camerano. That whole idea of being something and making ourselves into something, of living up to the expectations of others can be a heavy, heavy challenge. For example, one of the scriptures I'd love for you to read this week uh, in light of uh, this sermon is Psalm 51. That's the psalmist treatment of um, uh, King David's story. Uh, Following uh, his sin with Bathsheba, uh, this was the prayer of contrition and repentance. 
As we read through the uh, Psalm 51, we find uh, beautiful language about create in me a clean heart, O God. Um, This idea that in the presence of God, our sins can be forgiven. And boy, howdy, did King David have some sins that needed to be forgiven. Uh, King David, who uh, started out as a shepherd boy, wasn't even considered to be the king. Um, When uh, Jesse gathered all the children together uh, for the prophet to decide who had been anointed king by the Lord, uh, Jesse was left in the field to watch the sheep. That when the prophet got done and said, have you no more? Is this all the, the sons you have? Jesse called for uh, David, who was uh, the ready one. Um, I'm still not sure what exactly that means. And called him in, and the prophet said, this is the one whom God has chosen. And so from humble beginnings, King David uh, uh, occupies the palace. He leads the troops into battle. He functions as uh, the uh, voice and hands of a a government uh, that is of the chosen people of Israel. Everything went well until the day that David decided he'd have a pajama day and stay back at the house. Uh, Maybe he was going to watch Netflix and hang out in his pajamas while the soldiers went off to battle. The soldiers went off to battle. Uh, He began looking out of his palatial estate, his um, uh, suite uh, at the top of the palace and saw down below that Bathsheba, a beautiful married woman, uh, was taking a bath. And so he sent for her. In the biblical sense, knew her, and they conceived a child. Now, you can make the argument, why was Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house? But really, shortly after that, uh, it's all David's fault. David conspires to have Uriah killed. Uh, He works uh, and conspires with the general of the army. Uh, He even brings Joab into it to find every possible way to erase and hide the sin of his adultery. Uh, Nathan is the prophet Uh, Nathan, um, I I love Nathan because he's crafty. I I want to be crafty someday when I grow up. Uh, Nathan visits David and tells David that um, there's been a difficult thing that's happened in the land. And David said, what? And he says, well, let me tell you a story. Could you imagine one person who has, uh, is very affluent, has hundreds and hundreds of sheep and cattle lacks for nothing uh, and looks across the pasture and sees an older gentleman with one sheep to his name. And this one sheep was as close to this man as a son, that they, um, the, the cherishing of that sheep by that older man was a powerful, beautiful thing. But the affluent um, uh, gentleman who had uh, lack of nothing and had hundreds and hundreds of sheep and cattle desired that one sheep. And so he conspired to get it, only to slaughter it, to enjoy it for a meal. David, at this point, gets really upset, having been a shepherd and knowing what it means to care for the flock. He kind of rises up and says, who is this man that's in my kingdom? As if he's about to punish that man. And Nathan, being crafty, says, you, you're the man. What's hard about this story, we we spend a lot of time reading in Scripture how God uh, forgives us of our sin, uh, washes us as white as snow, that our sin is not remembered. It is as far as the east is from the west. But there are some stories in Scripture where there are consequences for our actions. And here in this one, there are consequences for David's actions. Even though he has repented, um, the Scripture says the sword will never leave your house. And that um, for generations to come, Uh, David's consequences are are dealt out. 
his infant son dies, the one that he and Bathsheba had conceived, that his uh, next son, Amnon, uh, has a horrible, unspeakable relationship with Tamar. His next son, Absalom, kills the other son, Ammon, and Absalom rebels, takes over the city of Jerusalem, flees from the city of Jerusalem with all of David, David's harem, and Absalom eventually is killed, sending David, his father, into grief that he probably never recovers from. Sure, God forgives David, but there are consequences for his actions. I think one of the pieces that's so haunting for me is that the last exchange that Nathan and David have prior to uh, David and Bathsheba's uh, tryst is that Nathan says, the prophet says to the king, says, I will pray that God will watch over you no matter what. Now, prior to Bathsheba, that's a great statement of love and trust that the prophet will pray that God will watch out for you. But in the midst of the tryst, that's not very helpful that God will watch over you. And that even after the tryst is over, you have to imagine that psychologically that David is thinking, if I could just hide a little bit from God, could we have a little bit less than God watching over me over all things? I'm sure we've probably been in those places as well. We just want a little bit of a break from being a child of God, just a little bit of a break from being a, a leader of the church or a pastor, just a little bit of a break when no one can know who we are so that we can just be somebody else. But it doesn't work for David, and it doesn't work for us. I think it's powerful that the king of Israel King David, the person that the psalmists describe as a person after God's own heart, becomes an adulterous murderer and has his sins bring punishment on his children for generations to come. What was David's flaw? What was his problem? Most would say that his problem was pride. He believed as the king, he could do as he pleased. And he did, and the consequences came. A corrective for David might have been uh, the important of, importance of admitting his flaws, of uh, becoming humble, of not trying to be the one who's in charge of everything, but just be the one that God's created to be you. I think admitting our flaws is a powerful part of fearless parenting. Uh, we started the series with making boundaries, that uh, boundaries against the culture of the world, boundaries against other uh, uh, um, interests, and boundaries so that our kids can grow and become who God's called them to be. The second week, we talked about being weird, uh, which was the importance of kind of going counter to the culture, of finding those things that are life-giving and important uh, in, in being uh, a Christian household and doing them. Uh, doing them even if it makes us look weird to the rest of the culture. And today on the last Sunday, we talk about being humble, about recognizing that maybe we do not have all of it under control. Uh, maybe we have not learned how to do everything I, I love. I told you all this last uh, week. I, I have a friend who has a 16-year-old daughter, and the 16-year-old daughter loves uh, to kind of say, that's not how all of my uh, friend's parents act. That They don't have to do those things. Why, why do I have to do those things? And the, the friend says, wow, you're my first 16-year-old daughter. I've never had one before. I'm gonna make some mistakes, but together we'll figure it out together. Now, in the vein of admitting flaws and faults, I am willing to admit that the title Fearless Parenting is uh, inadequate. 
Let's just be honest, right? Um, Fearless Parenting might be an inadequate title for a sermon series that primarily to a congregation that are empty nesters, right? I had a a, a person remind me uh, of this this week, and it's been a helpful part of uh, working through and thinking through uh, who we are and how best this sermon series can help. So it's fair to say if I had more real estate on the screens, maybe it would be better to say fearless grandparenting or or fearless uh, coaching, fearless teaching, fearless mentoring, fearless influencing of children in our neighborhood, fearless opportunities to impact those around us. Admitting our flaws is a chance to become better. Uh, It's a chance to learn better together with others about how best we can be a part of the community, how best uh, we can be all that God has called us to be. In thinking through about how all of us impact children, uh, I was reminded that one study says that one in 10 children uh, live in a household uh, that is led by a grandparent. Um, I, I can, and then the, along with that study, it says that half of those children, that one in 10, are under six years of age. I can only imagine how challenging it would be to raise uh, a grandchild in your home who's under six. I would guess that you would cancel the gym membership immediately because you're gonna get your cardio workout on your own, right? No laughter there. Um, <laughs> Also, I was interested in finding out uh, as I started looking into the prevalence of nuclear families, right? Because everywhere we go, I mean, I'm headed to um, a district conference uh, this afternoon where the bishop will continue to encourage us uh, to welcome and invest in the young. Um, Well, oftentimes we think that uh, investing in the young uh, means uh, investing in nuclear families. I was unable to find a national statistic, but um, a state statistic for California I know they're different than Texas, lots of fruits and nuts, but um, if you look at the California demographics in 2011, close to three quarters of children lived in families that were not nuclear, meaning they were not um, a husband and a wife who were married who had biological children in the house. Uh, That that was considered about 23% of California's children but that the other side, what was left over, the more than three quarters of households, uh, were um, either uh, unrelated children with adults or uh, blended families or uh, single parent homes or um, adopted circumstances. And so uh, the old days of Ozzy and Harriet and even the old days of the Brady Bunch have yielded to the modern family. Uh, that the, the standards and norms have put us in a place where we all find ourselves uh, mixing in and participating in the lives of children. The National Study of Youth and Religion remind us that uh, if we want to help kids bridge from high school faith into adult faith, that it takes five unrelated adults investing in one youth. Five adults investing in one youth. So I appreciate and understand the importance of widening the label around fearless parenting is very true. And I hope that you will reach out uh, to folk uh, who were uh, unimpressed with fearless parenting and invite them to come and join us as we celebrate youth and children next Sunday and uh, enjoy our stewardship campaign following. So what's some practical advice around being humble and parenting? 
I, I have eight reasons why I think adults should apologize to children when necessary, when appropriate, right? Don't just kind of call up all the children in your life and say, I'm sorry. No, no, not that. But in those moments uh, when um, uh, you acted poorly, in those moments when you didn't meet expectations uh, for biblical parenting, in those moments when you fell down on the job because there's only one of us who's perfect, and that's Jesus, um, it's appropriate to apologize. Here's eight reasons uh, to apologize. One is it facilitates accountability. It facilitates accountability. If I apologize to my kiddo, I've just let her know that parents aren't perfect and that she and I hold each other accountable to be the best that God's called us to be. The second one is uh, if we apologize for the things that we do wrong, it clearly defines right and wrong. If we don't ever apologize, then what I do is right and what she does is wrong, and that's not really helpful. Uh, I don't wanna model myself as a, a tyrant uh, over the household. I want to uh, clearly teach her what is right and what is wrong. Uh, the third reason is it provides a natural space to begin talking about faith. See, when I apologize, uh, it helps me to identify that the one thing that's common between all of us is that we all make mistakes and we all sin, that it becomes a teachable moment. And this is kind of the, uh, the fourth um, uh, piece, is that if both my child and I can make mistakes, and if God is in the business of forgiving mistakes, then I've just let her know that she and I work together in the project of faith as we grow into who God's called us to be. The other teachable moment, which would be uh, point number six, um, is that God's love is available to all of us. I mean, imagine what it'd be like for a kid to realize that even mom and dad, even grandparents, even coaches, teachers, mentors, even people, Christians who live uh, on the street need God's forgiveness. Sometimes we find ourselves living in an environment that it, apparently everyone inside the church has it down pat, and it's those people outside the church that are lost. Number six is it's natural uh, in an apology moment to invite an experience of prayer. If we're admitting that we didn't measure up, then taking a moment with the child to ask God to help us to mature and grow in our role as parents begins to teach them how accessible prayer is for all of us. Um, number seven, uh, number seven is um, an opportunity to teach our children how to forgive. Imagine, what are the opportunities where you can place the words inside your child's mouth, I forgive you, and it be in relationship in the family? I mean, if I uh, admit that I didn't measure up and I say that I'm going to work harder to measure up and she has regularly been in that other place where she's had to admit that she hasn't measured up and she's had to admit that she'll try harder, I've just changed the scales and showed her that, that she can use those words, I forgive you. Those are powerful words. I mean, I want my child to learn, I'm sure you do too, we want children to learn those things younger, right? I'd rather kids make mistakes when they're under 12 than make mistakes when they're over 30, because the, the uh, consequences that come for the mistakes that are made over 30 versus the mistakes that are made under 12 are completely different. And so putting the words, I'm sorry, into her mouth can be powerful. When we begin uh, handling situations better by apologizing, it allows our children and us to be 
uh, partners. Uh, I remember one author saying uh, that she had had a hard time with her three-year-old's tantrums. Has anyone had a hard time with three-year-old tantrums, right? And that she'd made a vow that she wouldn't raise her voice in the midst of her three-year-old's tantrum. Well, there came a three-year-old tantrum, and then there came a 43-year-old tantrum, and then there came an apology, and then there came an explanation to the three-year-old from the mom. I'm trying really hard to learn how not to raise my voice. I hope that you'll help me by being the best kid you can be, and I'm hoping that I'll help myself by asking God to help me. So I just wanted you to know I'm working on it. The three-year-old, in a clear, clear moment, turns back to mom and says, do you know, you did really good today, mom. I'm proud of you. If I had a sticker, I'd give you one. Do you see how the dynamic has changed? It's no longer the, I'm unaware of exactly how I'm supposed to parent, but rather be, by being humble, by asking for forgiveness, by holding each other accountable, we find ourselves in an environment that's not about perfect, but rather about mature, and together we find and learn how to be in life together. It's hard not to contrast um, this, uh, these ideas and this sermon uh, with the fact that this morning the Pope made a point to visit with uh, survivors of clergy sexual abuse, to look them in the eye and say, I'm sorry. Think of all the power that that man has. He could probably go his whole papal uh, tenure and never have to be in the same room with anyone who's suffered uh, from clergy sexual abuse. But instead he makes the choice to sit face to face and say, I'm, I'm sorry. And then to contrast that with how Volkswagen has handled uh, their issues over the last seven days, you know, very interesting to go to all the trouble to install software so that when emissions are tested, uh, your car knows how to make it look like it's really clean diesel. And then when the emissions testing isn't being made to make it run 40 times more polluting. What does it look like for us to teach our children when they're young how to be humble? How to teach our grandchildren how to be humble when they're young? How to model humility as a teacher, as a coach, as a mentor, how to model humility here in the halls of the church, there in the streets of our neighborhood. I think when we begin doing those things and continue doing those things, we are just a little bit closer to heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, if you'll um, grab a hand next to you for our closing benediction, Betty Phillips is gonna be up here ready to pray with you uh, or to arrange care for you. Oh, I'm supposed to talk about this before I walk out with it. This is a bulletin board which will be in the narthex. Uh, it's helping us organize for the Harvest Festival, uh, which we called Trunk or Treat last year, but we're kind of adding some more things to it. Here are wonderful ideas about trunks. Feel free to take it and write your name just to let us know that you're going, going to be involved in that way. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Almighty God, we give thanks that you have invited us not to be perfect, but to be faithful. Uh, as you've invited us, let us invite our children to do the same. And together may we be humble as we spread fearlessly your gospel to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.